as our Cactus Campus joins us right now, as well as our chapel and our venue across campus, uh, some of you, many of you actually, have asked about Tom and Tom Schrader and how he's doing. As you know, he's going to have surgery uh, on his head last week, so I'd, I'd love to give you an update uh, on Tom, because I did ask him if I could and if I could share with you all uh, how he's doing. So let me do that right now. And um, I, yeah, yeah. So, now some of you are already offended, I know that, because you're looking out for poor Tom. I asked Tom if I could uh, give the update with his hat on, and he said, and I quote, uh, he said, the black hat is like a Scottish accent, it's worth three points. So, it, uh, I think it does work. No, in uh, all seriousness, um, now my hair's messed up for the sermon, but... Uh, Tom is doing well. He had surgery on his head, as many of you know, for cancer, and uh, he has some more follow-up tests. Here's what he wrote when I asked him how he was doing. He says, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, got home Tuesday afternoon, got a CAT scan this week, surgeon follow-up on Monday, slow and steady. And then in typical Tom fashion, he said, how are you? And so uh, he's doing well. It was a blessing to have him here last week. As uh, many of you know, he's such a dear friend of our church. And keep praying for him because we hope to have him uh, again. Amen. And because uh, he's a, a great uh, man of God, a great personality, and, a, and a, an incredible preacher of God's word, and one of uh, my dear friends and our dear friends. So it was a blessing to have him. Well, we're going to continue on, as was mentioned earlier, in our Christmas series here, and uh, we're talking about joy. And we're going to talk very candidly about that in just a second, but first let's pray. Father, I thank you for this season. I know some of us wrestle or struggle with this season. I get it. I get it. But God, we're trying to blow through all the trappings and seasonal issues of this season, and, and we're trying to get right to the heart of it all, and that is, who is Jesus? Why is it that he came with such joy? And what is it about our lives today that we can align with this season to focus on him in the right way, in the way that truly gives us the joy that our hearts seek? So to that end, God, we pray, we ask you that you give us wisdom as we approach these Christmas stories that we're all familiar with. May we grab onto some nuggets that maybe we haven't heard over the years. And may we give you the praise in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin today by sharing a few biographical confessions about joy. We're going to spend a few minutes on this. Biographical confessions about joy. Because you see, I know that some of you, if not maybe more than some of you, have been a bit confused, even a bit annoyed and frustrated by my emphasis on joy over the last year. I know you better than you think I do. I know some of you have been thinking, man, you came back from your study break and you did this series on why Christians stink at joy and then you wrote a book on joy and, and now we're doing a Christmas series on joy and no offense, Jamie, but there's a lot of other topics we could talk about. Get off the joy thing. That's how some of you think. And so I want to explain, at least from my perspective, because a lot of you know me pretty well, why your pastor has been talking so much lately about joy. 
And what you need to know is that for me, it started about two years ago last month. I can tell you exactly when it started, when I was talking with Baker Books about doing my first book. I've always been a book snob. I feel that if somebody writes a book, they better have something unique to say. And so I did a series here at Scottsdale Bible, you might remember a few years back, on one verse in the Bible, Philippians 4.8, and we called the series Attitude. And, and, and it was a great response from many of you as we looked at this verse that says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, uh, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And, and it was really something I had never seen somebody do, spend two months on one verse, and you guys seem to dig it, so I submitted it as a book concept. And the editor initially loved the idea and said, but you know, people aren't going to buy a book on attitude, even if your congregation liked it. He said, but they would buy a book on thinking. So let's write a book on thinking. We actually provisionally entitled it, Don't Settle. So I wrote the book. It took about a year. And then we submitted it to all the different uh, groups at Baker for, you know, publishing. And they all came back in unison and said, you know, verse 9, because I included verse 9 in the book, talks about how the God of peace will be with you if you learn to think this way. Peace and joy, as we'll see today, do tie together neatly in the scriptures. So you talk about joy. Why don't we talk, call the book How Joyful People Think? And I remember thinking, that's a much better title than Don't Settle. And it is true that there's a lot of joy to be found in the way that we think this way. And so I gave an okay to that. And this is a true story. I had lunch with Schrader that day. And I was so excited about this. And I said, hey, Tom, you know, they're going to retitle my new book. And they're going to call it How Joyful People Think. And Schrader was great. He said, that is a really good title. It just doesn't fit the author very well. <laughs> And more than any of you might know, Schrader was onto something. Uh, he really is. I, I gave the, in the introduction or the dedication to the book, I dedicated it to my wife who's here right now. And I said she's the most naturally joyful person that I've ever met, and it's true. I grew up with her, we went to the same schools together in the same small town we grew up in, and my wife is one of the most joyful people you ever meet. She wakes up joyful, she goes to bed joyful, even when stress hits, she maintains her joy. Do you know how difficult it is to live with that? Because I tend to be more of a critical thinker. I grew up in a rather tense home. And even once I got saved, I have found that I have to fight for every ounce of joy that I get. And too many times I'm like many of you, and that is that I, I sadly succumb to perseverance rather than joy. Can any of you relate? In other words, when tough times hit, I dig deep, I trust God, and I say, we are gonna get through this, <laughs> but I don't really get through it with joy. Whereas I live with somebody who has a tremendous amount of joy. Schrader was right. It didn't really fit the author. And yet as I started to look more closely into joy, here's what I found, and I couldn't escape this. And that is that joy is listed as the second fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Jesus tells us that joy is a direct result of knowing him, John 15 verse 11. James tells us that we should count it all joy in all of our trials, James 1 verse 2. And then Paul tells us that our lives should be overflowing with joy in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 3. So it's all over the scriptures that joy is one of the markers 
that we know God and, and have him deeply in our lives. And so I was faced with a crossroad two years ago last month. I was either going to write a book about joy from a biblical intellectual perspective and hope that nobody found me out for the fraud that I am, which by the way, a lot of authors do do stuff like that, or I was going to enter into the tunnel of chaos with the Lord and begin to make some serious headway with this hard to catch thing called joy. And I made a choice to do the latter, a choice. I actually write in the book in chapter nine that joy is a choice. You can choose to think a certain way. You can choose to posture yourself before God in a certain way that gives you the best chance of getting joy. And two years ago, I determined that I was gonna make a choice to start seeking more the joy of the Lord. And here is what's really important for you guys to understand about my journey over the last two years that brings us up to today. And that is that being a critical and intellectual thinker, I have chosen over the last two years to do a deep dive into the biblical reality of joy and to try to discover what joy is, how it works, where we get it, and even how we get it in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, I've chosen to not take the simpleton approach to joy that simply says, well, joy comes from God and I believe in God, so I have joy. No, that's for third graders. And I tried that for 38 years and it did not work very well for my faith in the Lord. And so two years ago, I determined to become a student of joy and to study deeply and try to apply deeply this idea of joy in my life. And it's been a great journey over the last 24 months. I'm still nowhere near my wife. I don't know if I ever will be, but I have, I have experienced more joy in the Lord than I ever thought I would. And so here's a quick review of some of the things that I've shared with you over the last two years. When we did the Fruits of the Spirit series a couple of years ago, we did a whole message on joy. And you might remember I gave you this definition of joy that's kind of from C.S. Lewis and his study of joy. He says, joy is a longing and a desire built upon hope. That's the definition of joy. It's unlike any other emotion. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is simply that emotional gratification that you get when the Browns win or when your 401k, yes, thank you, when your 401k is doing well or something like that. That's not joy. Joy is this deep-seated longing and desire in your soul as a follower of Jesus built upon hope, thirst of what God is doing and is going to do. And so joy is an incomplete emotion that we have this side of heaven. But we get a taste of God now and what wells up in us, that hope, that thirst, that longing desire, that's joy. And that revolutionized my life. And then we started learning things like this. I, I closed, or this was what my whole book was about. Uh, joy comes through aligning our thoughts with God's truth. So you don't get joy by seeking joy. That's one of the first things I realized is that I wanted to get more joy, so I started saying, well, I think I'll just be more happy. Well, that doesn't work. I mean, you can't manufacture joy any more than you can manufacture love. And so I started to realize that joy comes through, as Philippians 4.8 says, thinking the way God wants us to think about whatever is true and lovely and commendable and honorable and praiseworthy and those things. And the fruit of that is that joy will start to invade your soul. And then we learned this. This one was really great. We wrapped up with this a couple of weeks ago, but I've been telling it to you for two years. Joy is not tied to our circumstances, but to our faith in God, right? 
So happiness is tied to your circumstances. And most Christians are addicts when it comes to happiness. It's one of the great problems with Christianity in America is that we are addicted to seeking happiness and we tie it to the Lord and we call that joy. So you get a great bonus at Christmas and you say, I'm joyful. Or maybe, you know, the kid doesn't go off the deep end this year. I'm joyful. And again, those are all good things to happen. The problem is, is that you could be confusing joy with happiness because if it's tied to your circumstances, the chances are it's not joy. Joy comes from the Lord. Joy comes from the rich things of your faith that nobody can ever steal from you. Isn't that awesome? And and so we've been talking about how do we get that kind of joy that's not tied to our circumstances, but to the Lord. And then finally, this rocked some of you two weeks ago in this series, we learned that joy is found in God's favor upon you, his deliverance that he's given you, and his power through the Holy Spirit who lives in you. I got so much feedback on my message two weeks ago. I even had a a guy from another church come last week when Schrader was here. And and I said, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. What are you doing? He goes, well, I heard your message was particularly good the week before. So I decided to come and check it out. And I said, hey, it's never going to be as good as like last week. So you just, you know, just go back to your church. And uh, (laughs) he didn't feel joy in me because of that. And, uh, but, but, but many of you were resonating with that. The joy is found in God's favor upon you. His deliverance that is in your life and the power of the Holy Spirit. See, here's what I've discovered, gang. And we're going to move on here in just a second. The Bible is chock full of profound and life-giving truths about what joy is and how we get it. And they're worth pausing in front of, plumbing the depths of, and then prioritizing in our daily lives. So that's kind of a rather long answer in, in biographical form as to why we're spending time on joy this year. Simply put, this poor pilgrim needs it. And I think many of us do as well. And yet, we're now coming to the end of our journey, at least for this current season. Because we have only two weeks left before Christmas, two weeks left to look at the Christmas players who had joy. And then in the new year, we're going to move on to other stuff. We're going to talk about the fall and how the fall plays itself out in the 21st century, a great series we have planned for January into February. And then we're going to, in February, pick up John again and go through John 16. And then we're going to study an Old Testament book in the spring. So maybe joy will come up in that, but if I don't miss my guess, other themes will as well. And so we have two more weeks to, to, to ask God, what do you want us to know about joy? And so let's enter into the home stretch here today. There are two key truths that I gleaned over my study over the last few months of the story that was read for you earlier, the story of Simeon and Anna. And the first thing I'm going to share with you is going to seem so vanilla, so non-interesting at first, but hang in there, don't tune out because this is really, really life-giving here. And that is that riding tandem with the joy in you is peace. Riding tandem with joy is peace. Now, as I said, this one is very, very interesting and more life-changing in our understanding of joy than we might think, so let me explain. And to begin understanding this idea of peace riding tandem with joy in our souls because of Jesus, I want us to look at the story that was read earlier and track the progression of the discovery of joy in this story. You might remember that the story begins with the newly born Jesus who is now just a few weeks old. 
It says that after eight days, they named him Jesus. And then when the days of purification were over, it says they went up to the temple. The day of purification, days of purification would be about 40 days. So Jesus, we know, was 48 days old when they took him up to the temple. And they went to the temple in Jerusalem to present Jesus to the Lord in keeping with Old Testament uh, laws, as well as to make a sacrifice for their firstborn son. Again, according to Leviticus in the Old Testament. This is something all devout Jews would do in first century times. So nothing unusual yet. And yet it's in the temple here that things begin to heat up. Because there's a man named Simeon. You heard his name mentioned in the scripture reading. And here's what you need to know about Simeon. This is really important. He is just an ordinary man. Luke makes it very clear. He's not a priest. He's not a holy man. He's not a religious leader. He is described as devout and righteous, which would be a description that would be used for somebody who's all in when it comes to their relationship with God. And he's filled with the Spirit. But again, lots of people were filled with the Spirit who followed the Lord, even in the Old Testament. And yet he did have something very, very, very unique about his life. And that is that he had decided to commit the remainder of all of his days, he was an older guy, to waiting patiently for the consolation of Israel. Now you go, what is the consolation of Israel? Well, simply put, it's the coming of Israel's Messiah into this world that was predicted for hundreds of years in the Old Testament, the coming Messiah who would usher in a new age of rule for God's people. They were waiting for a deliverer, a Messiah. After the, the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, they, God, God was going to do something to save Israel. Now, pause on that thought for just a minute of waiting for God to do something. That's what Simeon was doing. How many of you have ever waited on God for something big in your life? If that's happened to you, raise your hand. Cactus venue and chapel, raise your hand. Many of us have. It might be for a spouse, it might be for a child, it might be for that job that you want, it might be for some dream or desire, it might be for an answer to prayer. Many of us who have been around the block spiritually more than once have waited on God patiently and many times for a very long time for him to show up and do something. Here's why that's important. Multiply it by a hundred and now you understand Simeon. Because you see, you're not waiting for a hundreds-year-old promise to come true to your nation from God. That's what Simeon's doing here. And so I don't mean to poo-poo anything that you ever wait on God for. That's very important between you and God. But Simeon has upped the ante here. He has basically been told by God, you're not going to die till you see a promise I made hundreds of years earlier come true that will affect the whole world. And he knows it, and he's waiting on that for the consolation of Israel. So this is the scene in the temple. Simeon, a guy like many of us, waiting for God himself to show up and do something huge for this world. And what happens next is the ascension of joy for Simeon. Because it says in verses 27 and 28 that the Spirit guided Simeon to the temple that day at the precise moment that Jesus was there. That's divine. That's not an accident. And you got to picture this. When Simeon saw them, it says he ran over to them and took the baby in his arms. 
That's really important. You got to picture this old man grabbing the baby from Mary and Joseph. They had to be a little bit put off with that. And then as he grabbed the baby, he immediately began to talk, not to them, but to God. And it says that he blessed God with a personal prayer filled with prophetic utterances and praise. In fact, it would be such a powerful prayer that in verse 33, it will tell us that Joseph and Mary's response after they got over the shock of somebody grabbing their baby was to be amazed. That's a powerful word in the Bible. It means to marvel, to admire with astonishment. And in this prayer that Simeon prays, again, picture it while holding this baby, the first thing he says is that my eyes have now seen your salvation. In other words, the Messiah, the deliverer that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years is now here and and I'm holding this baby in my arms. And then he says a second thing, and this had to have blown everybody away. This is why they were amazed. He said, and this child will be a light unto the Gentiles. Whoa, this is supposed to be for Israel. And now you're saying that everybody's gonna be blessed through this child, a light to guide them and reveal who God is to them. Yep, that's what Simeon is saying. And then he does include Israel and he said it'll be glory, literally radiance for Israel. Here's all I need you guys to see right now. And I was asking you a question. Can you feel the joy that Simeon might've been experiencing at that moment, yes or no? Yeah, that's why you got a picture of holding this kid. And doing these prophetic utterances. And you got to believe that joy was filling up his soul at that very moment. It's joy for Simeon. It's joy for Joseph and Mary, as we saw. And again, the words give it away. Even if you say, well, it doesn't mention joy, Jamie. Listen to the words that he uses. Blessing, praise, light, salvation, glory. And then the amazement of Joseph and Mary. It's a scene of absolute joy. And Simeon then, at this point, adds an understanding to this joy, one that's going to become so instructive to you and me when he gives a summary statement to all of this in verse 29. Let me show it to you because this was read for you earlier again, but I want us to focus on this now. Uh, Simeon says this. He says, now, Lord, you are releasing your bond servant to depart in peace according to your word. Obviously, we know what he's saying here. He's saying, okay, my time has come. I'm holding the baby. I'm joyful. I've seen your deliverance. Now, it's time to go home. You said I would see this baby before I die. I'm an old man. Let's take me home now. And I'm also going to depart with what in my soul? Say the word with me. So in the midst of all the joy, riding tandem there was peace. We need to, to, to look more deeply into that right now. And that word peace is a very common word in the New Testament. It's actually mentioned just a shy of a hundred times. And it's got a great meaning. It means back then what it means today. People try to make more of peace, you know, sometimes spiritually than what it is. Same thing back then today. It means harmonious relationships, freedom from disputes, freedom from worry, tranquility. And so peace is something that all of us are aware of. We could even probably define it pretty clearly. I actually love the definition from Rio Hatfield. Last night, nobody knew who the Hatfields and the McCoys was. Raise your hand if you know the Hatfields and the McCoys. About half of you, the older half. (laughs) 
When I was growing up, if two people were fighting, you'd say you're fighting like the Hatfields and the McCoys, which were two families 150 years ago, I think in Kentucky, somewhere back in the Midwest. And, and they'd been feuding for years, these families. And there was a lot of bloodshed. And it became known as the Hatfield-McCoy dispute. And it went on for generations until 2003, when one of the great, 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 great grandsons in this dispute, Rio Hatfield, decided enough is enough, and he drafted a document that they all would eventually sign on, on actually June 14, 2003, that became their reconciliation statement. And I love his definition of peace in the statement. This is right from the statement. Rio Hatfield says this. He says, we do hereby informally declare an official end to all hostilities, implied, inferred, and real between the families now and forevermore. See, that's peace. I can't think of a better definition of peace. If you had to put it in spiritual terms between us and God, it would, word, it would be worded like this. In and through Jesus Christ, or in and through, in and through Jesus as Savior, God does hereby and formally declare an official end to all hostilities, implied, inferred, and real between himself and those who embrace him through Christ. See, this is what Simeon was starting to get in touch with when he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. This is gonna be for all people who would embrace him. This is glory for Israel. And he even says, there's gonna be some hard times coming because not everybody's gonna buy into this. But, but believe me, this is very real stuff. That's what Simeon is saying here. He's starting to realize that God came to this planet to do something, to offer something to each and every one of us to deal with our biggest problem that we have, and that's our sin that keeps us from knowing God, that keeps us from walking with him. And the reason that we can say that we have peace with God, look at how Romans 5 would put it, is because it says, therefore, when we are justified by faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because of while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So follow the logic here. It's simply saying that Jesus came to this earth to bring peace between us and God, something we couldn't do for ourselves by dying in our place, by taking our sin upon himself. And the wrath of God, the anger of God, make no mistake, God gets mad. And he gets mad at all the shenanigans and sin that goes on in this world. And Jesus came to say, I will take that upon you. I will give you, or upon myself, I will give you the salvation that you need so that there might be peace between man and God or between humankind and God. That's what Simeon was getting in touch with. And what you need to see, what you don't want to miss, is that this peace that was riding tandem with the joy was there very much for a reason. And the reason is, is because they feed off one another. They ride tandem with each other. In a very real way, what this passage is teaching us is that you can't have one without the other. Here's what I'm realizing, gang. The only way I'm gonna get joy is to realize how much I am at peace with God. And when I realize the peace of God, I, by, by osmosis, I'm going to have joy. And many times, conversely, when I have joy, the only reason I'm going to have that joy is because I realize that I'm at peace with God. Give me a head now that that makes some sense to you. It's telling us here the foundation of our, of our joy. 
and that the foundation of the joy for Simeon was this peace that he was starting to experience as he held Jesus. The same peace that you and I can get. Actually, it's the same peace that we have in Christ that should produce the joy that our hearts are looking for. About 30 years ago, actually it'll be 30 years ago this coming year, Kim and I were in our second year of marriage and uh, my family had a cabin in northern Michigan and uh, we would go regularly up to this cabin because it was free and we had no money. And so I remember our very first year of marriage, we wanted to celebrate one year, so we went up to the cabin. And uh, on one particular day, we decided to spend a day trip up at Mackinac Island. Some of you might know where that is. It's a beautiful island up uh, just south of the UP in Michigan, the Upper Peninsula. And it's got a beautiful grand hotel called the Grand Hotel. It's got lots of tourist things to do and all of that. And it's just a wonderful island to go to. And when we, I remember getting off the boat, we didn't have a way to get around the island. So there was this bike rental shop. And being newlyweds and being in that, that highly romantic state, I said to Kim, let's not get two bikes, let's get one bike, because they were renting tandem bikes. Do you remember tandem bikes? Uh, you guys didn't remember the Hatfields. Give me a hand, do you remember the tandem bikes? Good. So we bought this bike, that was, or rented this bike, it was a tandem bike, and it was really fun. It was the last time we've ever drove one, but we were, were on this tandem bike, and I was in the front, and Kim was in the back, and we're riding around Mackinac Island, and it was really fun. And at one point, we started going up a hill. This is a true story. And I was in great shape back then. It's going to be hard for you to picture it, but 140 pounds, and you know, I was running six miles a day, and I was a machine, as a lot of young men are, and, and I remember just starting to you know, really pedal harder going up this hill. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, this is a lot harder, even with two people, than I thought it would be. And, and at one point, I looked back, and Kim had put her feet up on the, the bar and, and was just, you know, she's a joyful person. She's looking around, smiling, you know, and I'm trying to huff and puff getting up this hill. And it would not be the last time that I ever got curt with her. I, 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 again, I'm, I, I want more joy, but I just tend to be too intense. So I, I remember looking back and I go, pedal, Kim, pedal. And, uh, and, and it was really embarrassing because this tour bus, this open air tour bus was coming right then at the same time. Right, Kim, remember this? And they all thought it was so funny that they started yelling in unison, pedal, Kim, pedal. <laughs> And we eventually got up the hill. <laughs> Here's why I thought of that story this week, and I, and I really think it makes sense for you and I, and maybe this will now be the, 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 the connection for you. I think this is why God links joy and peace so closely. And that is that he knows that we need both to accelerate through the ups and downs of life. The, the, the joy and peace, the reason I say it's riding tandem with each other, I thought about that wording, it's kind of like a tandem bike where, where you have both joy and peace pedaling at the same time in your soul. And when that happens, when those things are both operating, man, you got a power behind you that you never thought possible. It's just that here's the deal we need to wrestle with. And that is that peace can be forgotten Peace can be put on the back burner in our lives. Peace can be something that we don't pursue. And when that happens, don't be surprised if the joy suffers as well. I, th this happens to me more often than I, than I wish it would. I, I, um, 
I, I live, a very vis- live a very busy life like you guys do, and, and, I, and I wish it didn't happen to me. This is, again, confession time in the house of God. But there, there are so many times where I get too burdened by the things of this world, and I forget the power of God operating in my salvation despite my circumstances. Can any of you relate? I, I mean, I get burdened about my children they're, they're adults now, but they're, you know, acclimating to adulthood. They all got their issues. I, I get burdened by the church. In fact, my favorite quote from the Bible when people say, how you doing? I go, well, I'll quote Paul the apostle. I, I, I got conflicts on the outside, fears within, and on top of that, my concern for all the churches. I, I mean, I, I just carry those burdens with me way too often. And it would not be unusual for me to come home at the end of a day here at Scottsdale Bible. And again, it's not just the church, but also my, my personal issues. And I'm driving home and, and I'm thinking to myself, man, I said to you guys, just to you guys earlier, I think to myself, man, got through that day. You know, thank you, God, for getting me through the fire and, you know, getting me home and can't wait to watch NCIS with Kim. You know, it's kind of a good reprieve from the battle. And then I think to myself, what a pathetic way to live. Because I can promise you this, I'm not driving home joyful. <laughs> I'm not driving home with a smile on my face. I'm not driving home with this contentment of spirit that God wants us to have. And yet there's no way to undo the circumstances. They are what they are. They're not going to change overnight. But what can change is me. And so here would also be something that's not unusual, that I will catch my spirit, say, on the drive home, and I will say, stop that, Jamie. Jamie. God is in your life. He has, he has given you a place, Ephesians 1 says, in heaven, an inheritance guaranteed, stored up for you. He has forgiven you of all of your sin, even your sin of despondency right now. He, he is in your life. He has given you power. His favor is upon you. And he looks at you, even in the midst of all the things going on, even if you ever lost your church, no matter what it would be, he would look at you and say, don't worry, I'm in control, it's okay. And see, and many times, too many times, I forget that. But when I remember that, do you know what starts to well up in my soul? Say the word with me, it's not joy, it's the other thing we're looking at, peace. See, I think this is what Simeon was experiencing. Do you know what it was like to live in the first century? It wasn't good. No running water, no real doctors or hospitals. I mean, economic problems like crazy. I mean, Caesar was in charge. So Simeon's life was not a good life. And even given just the first century, we know that he probably had personal problems and family problems and, you know, who knows where his wife is. I mean, like I said, he was a guy just like us. And yet don't miss this. This is the whole point. When he was holding that baby near to him, something changed inside of him. I have seen your salvation, a light to the Gentiles, glory for Israel, all from this little baby and why he came to earth and why this baby came to earth. And then he says, I can now depart in peace, full of joy. And my simple question to you today, because we're going to wrap this up in four minutes, I promise. My simple question to you today is, could that be true for you? Can you and I experience that same peace that produces that same joy riding tandem together? Or is that just reserved for biblical players who we tend to think are more holy than us? 
I'm here to tell you today that the story of Simeon is for you and that God wants you to have that same peace. And don't fake it till you make it. Many Christians will say, well, I appreciate that sermon, Jamie. It's a good reminder. I hate it when you guys say that. That's a good reminder, you know, that I have that peace. That's not what I'm saying today. I'm saying that if you are in Jesus, you do have that peace, but, but your sin, your worries, and the things of the world, and all the things you're focused on have totally eclipsed that peace that is in there that God wants to rise up and have be the reigning thing in your soul. That's what I want you to hear today. Because that's my battle every day, to not allow the world, to not allow even the good things in this life to rob me of the peace that God says I have with him. Because if that peace can reign in my soul, joy is not too far behind. See, that's what I'm learning about joy. That's what I want for all of us. Now, one last thought and then we're done. Because some of you, you know, we didn't get to point two. It's going to really be for another sermon. But if I don't fill in the blank, you're going to have mild anxiety today. So uh, let's just give you the blank here and and tell us what Anna teaches us. And, And we don't need to spend a lot of time on this because this is just so cool. Resulting from joy is thanksgiving resulting from joy. See, there's this other gal there in the temple named Anna. We know nothing about her except the tribe that she was from, which is not an unusual tribe, and, and that she was a prophetess, meaning that she would speak forth God's truth. And Anna also sees this Jesus, and look at what it says about Anna. Verse 38, it says at that very moment, she, Anna, came up and began giving thanks to God. So here's all I simply need you to see, because I think this is, nope, go back one. This is kind of where, well, you can say on that one. (laughs) I'm kind of rushing through this. And that is that, that Anna also was a part of the joy that was going on in the temple there, And her response was to give thanks. So here's my simple point. Could it be that when we find ourselves giving thanks, that it just might be tied back to some joy of what God is doing in our lives? That's what I think is important here. I'm a man. Kim will tell you a thousand times that I am out of touch many times with my emotions. Can some of you men relate to this? I mean, I'll be feeling things and and, and I won't even know I'm feeling it. And Kim will say, I think you're feeling that. And I'll go, I think you're all wet. And, and then I think about it for 10 minutes and I go, no, she's right. I'm not going to tell her that, but she's right. I, I am feeling that. See, and I, and I play all these games and, and there's some times where I catch myself giving thanks to God. And what I don't realize is, is that I'm giving him thanks because there's joy in my life. Thank you, Lord, that you saved me. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in my church. Thank you for uh, what you're doing in my dad's life. Thank you for taking mom into heaven. Thank you. And I, and I thank God for all these things, and, and yet I don't look back and realize that that's flowing from joy. I, I miss the joy that's even in my own soul. So those are the two things we've learned today, that joy rides tandem with peace, and, and, and that if you want joy, then you need to let peace break through in your soul because peace and joy come together. And and that the result of that is that you'll find yourself giving thanks. And like Anna, when you do, then you're going to find that joy is probably the culprit for your thanks. I don't even know yet what we're going to say about the Magi. I'm in the journey with you all. Each week I'm going into my study. And as I said to you earlier, I'm in the thick of this saying, Lord, teach me something about joy. I think this was worth the price of admission. What do you think? Just remember, yeah, you don't have to clap. <laughs> I, 
I get embarrassed when you guys do that, but let's give claps to him because it's all his word. It's not of me. I'm in it with you. Let's find joy. It can be ours. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for these words that we get here from Simeon. And God, thank you that as he was looking to depart and enter into eternity, he could do so with joy and that, and that, and that, that writing tandem with that, that peace. And God, I have to believe that's for us that as we cradle Jesus in our own lives, as we look to him, as we embrace him, and as we realize that salvation is in him and it's a light to all people, not just to us, and that it's the glory of what you had done through Israel for so many years, as we realize all of that for our own lives, God, would you give us peace? We have the peace. May we recognize it, Lord, even more fully. And flowing out of that peace, may we experience the joy. That's my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.